Welcome to Securing Justice, a podcast series created by the California Center for Ethics and Policy, or CCEP, at Cal Poly Pomona, and generously supported by California Humanities. This is the third episode in our series, which focuses on housing and security in California. My name is Brady Collins, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Cal Poly Pomona and Faculty Fellow with CCEP. This episode was created by one of CCEP's 2020-2021 student fellows, Itzia Salinas-Cortez. CCEP recruits a new group of student fellows each academic year, whose coursework and research focuses on the year's theme. As you already know if you've been listening to our podcast, last year the theme was housing and security. As a resident of Riverside County, Itzia has grown acutely aware of the housing crisis's impact on her community. And as an architecture major at Cal Poly Pomona, she approaches this theme through the lens of her academic discipline. To better understand the role that architects can play in addressing housing affordability, she interviews Jim Broeski, an architect with 40 years of experience working in Southern California. In their discussion, they talk about the ways in which building codes and design standards pose unique challenges to architects working in affordable housing construction as well as creative solutions that architects and cities should consider to overcome them. A quick note, you'll hear Itzy and Jim talk about ADUs, which stands for Accessory Dwelling Units. ADUs are also often referred to as guest houses, granny flats, or backyard homes, and are typically small houses or converted garages that fit on the same plot of land as another single-family home and are often rented out as a way to create new housing units. As you'll hear, ADUs are a hot topic in urban planning today, with many cities trying to incentivize and or regulate their construction. We ask that if you like what you hear, if you care about these issues, please share our podcast with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thanks for listening. Riverside County's housing insecurity is growing as rents are increasing and there are less opportunities for low-income families. A report by the University of California, Riverside, says that as of the second quarter of 2019, average rent in the Inland Empire reached $1,390 per month, a 3.8% year-over-year increase, end quote. Bruce Broeski, an architect from Riverside, has years of experience working in housing. He specializes in building codes affecting construction, including Title 24, Physically Handicapped and Energy Conservation, Cal Green Building Code, Americans with Disabilities Act, and others. I interviewed him to further learn about the role of architects in the topic of affordable housing. We can begin with your theories. There's a political and emotional and psychological thing that go into affordable housing, uh, and there is no easy answer for it. And basically, you know, it's a very, very hard and difficult category of, of, of architecture based on the fact that it's, there is no easy solution. There is no pragmatic solution to it because affordable housing has a lot of contradictions to it as far as what it is and how you achieve it. And is it geared towards just poor people? Is it geared towards families? Is it geared towards homeless? Is it a social thing or is it a pragmatic thing, an economical thing? There's mm-hmm. just tons of... of uh, parameters that that affect affordable housing. And different states have different prospects for achieving affordable housing. We have the Cal Green Code, which is an environmental code that California has adopted and and created 
that is very costly to achieve for a development point of view. Uh, the building code, basically, and the ADA accessibility issues mm-hmm. that make projects uh, from a size point of view. Bathrooms have to be big. Kitchens have to be big. Uh, elements within those have to be sized accordingly, and the height has to be. So all that costs money. So you're right. working against your goal of affordable housing. How do you achieve both? And you know, if are you trying to temporarily get people out of homelessness or out of uh, poverty, put them into a transitional home? So is your affordable housing intended to be temporary or is it intended to be permanent? And again, getting back to the codes and somebody has to realize, is this project going to be affordable because we've constructed it cheaper? Is it going to be affordable because we put in higher density? Is it going to be affordable because the government is subsidizing it or charities are subsidizing? What makes it affordable? How how can you achieve that goal of affordability towards people? Uh, and any of those parameters above that I just stated are, are going to be you know how you achieve it because you're not going to achieve it otherwise because contractors, developers cannot build you know, specific, specifically in California to, to achieve these things with all these code restrictions that they have. So somebody's got to compromise. And going back to building code, I found interesting that you brought it up because I think that's one of the main components that affects architects while designing. Um, do you, in your experience, has there been times where you have been able to go around the building code and made a successful project that serves the public? Unfortunately, that's where liability comes in, because at this particular point, everybody's afraid to loosen up on the code restrictions. Mm-hmm. Your, your California building code, which is Title 24, allows the local building official to override the code in whatever elements he feels are necessary for the circumstances of that community. So he can override anything in the Title 24 building code. When you get back to the ADA codes, that's federal. That's the ju- Justice Department. Mm-hmm. Nobody will ever bend on an jo- ADA because of litigation and, and liability and things like that. So because it's a civil action and it's a um, discrimination issue. ADA is based on discrimination. You are discriminated against the accessibility. So you can be sued by not complying to the ADA code. And unfortunately or fortunately, the ADA code and Title 24 are very similar. So mm-hmm. you almost have to comply with both. So the chief building official is not gonna override the local if it imposes or allows you to bend on the ADA code. And, and the answer is no, I have not had anybody allow me to think. Then in order to meet the pragmatics of the construction quality, then you shrink your bedrooms and your living room. So mm-hmm. it has to give someplace. If you have to meet the size accommodations of accessibility, then you have to cut down on other rooms. Like there is no requirement as how big a, a living room is or how uh, the bedrooms have to be a certain size, doors have to be a certain size. So you got to cut someplace. If the entire house can only be afforded to be 1,200 square feet, something's got to give. Right, right. So those are the parameters you're, fi- you're forced with. So uh, it, is, it, it is what it is. There's also the liability associated with building a project that doesn't comply with all the codes and stuff. So, right. you, and, and everybody's litigious right now. So you, you build something that you think is appropriate. You think it's going gonna, it's gonna to do the trick for a period of time, but if it doesn't, doesn't comply with all the, the codes, whoever developed it gets sued with millions of dollars because he made an attempt to try and do something affordable that just doesn't achieve it. And I think what has to have is, is a leadership, whether it's state or federal, that literally says we're going to have 
this type of housing, which is maybe the transitional housing, in, in addition to that stuff, and again, this gets into a whole different thing, is the psychological and the uh, mental thing, issues of, right. of people that tend to get into these affordable housing. Mm-hmm. We sympathize with their, their mental attitudes and stuff, but if they don't want to get out of it, if they don't want to get into, you know, off the street, that's a whole different thing. And that needs to be treated totally different in, instead of an affordable housing complex. I was looking at your, at your website and I came across you mentioning the Economic Development Agency. How does that work into your project? They are the equivalent of agencies that provide the funding to do alterations and and upgrades and things like that. We did a family shelter where we took the existing family shelter, which was primarily a woman's shelter, but there were a few men there. But we had to upgrade the facility for current codes, and it was starting to deteriorate. So as we did it, we improved the women's restroom shower accommodations. We improved the men's shower accommodations. But in order to generate a handicapped, this is just an example, when we generated the handicapped accessible shower for the men, it was a single accommodation. So you have your, your toilet, your, your lab, and your shower all in the same room. And we had, to accommod- we had to deal with the existing conditions of it. By the time you did that and you have your roll-in shower that's required for accessibility, the project got built and then the people that are using this facility do not how, know how to use a roll-in shower where the water as you're, as you're showering in an ADA accessible shower gets out in the, in the restroom where the, the toilet and the water closet is. So they have a maintenance problem because they just don't know how to use the facility. So it's a combination of improper communication with their, their users in addition to the fact that a shower that meets handicapped accessibility is a roll-in shower. So you have a, a sad way of, of controlling the water so it doesn't spill out all over your... So building these facilities that meet accessibility conflict with the logic of how a typical non-disabled person would use that facility. And it goes uh, back to what you're saying of the cost that it may impose on you, whether it be the materiality or the fabrication or whatever it is, mm-hmm. but also... If you're able to find something affordable, then there's the cost of water running or bills or whatever it is. And then there's the, to me, a way that this could happen as far as the the nation, as far as solving homelessness and solving the affordable housing, is somebody has to, at the higher end, introduce legislation that says this is going to be a transitionary housing accommodation facility and Mm -hmm. allow the codes to be sort of put on the back burner for say five years or something where we say, okay, we have a situation where we have this huge demand for affordable housing, for bringing the handicap- the homeless off the, sh- off the streets. And we need to have a temporary sort of designation within the code of a transitionary home where we don't necessarily have to have every unit size for handicap. But see, that's the thing. You do an apartment complex and stuff, you have to size every single restroom for adaptability, not accessibility. So mm-hmm. you're stuck with that parameter of size. You're stuck with building a big bathroom, even though you may not have grab bars in it. You may not have, you know, all the other stuff. So you're stuck with size. So somebody needs to come by and say, okay, maybe, and this is what the code used to be. You used to do a certain percentage. You know, 1% of your facility used to be accessible. Now we have to have 100% of the facilities adaptable. 
Mm-hmm. And all that does is say you don't need to have the grab bars in there. It's, you still have to have the sizes. So somebody needs to come by and say, okay, let's build 95% of our facilities small. Let's get a small bedroom. Let's get a small bathroom. Let's get all this other stuff. And then we'll build a, a percentage that of the, the people that are disabled and we'll build a facility for them that's huge. You know, And that's going to be the costly one. And then the other ones are going to be the economical ones where people are in the equivalent of a motel room or something that just literally needs their accommodations from the sanitation point of view, from a sleeping, a safety point of view. They have a locked door. They mm-hmm. have, I, I think Japan has these, these sleeping facilities where it's literally a five by five by eight foot tube that you go into. Right. And you yeah. just, it works. Uh-huh. You know, it, so somebody needs to come back and just say temporarily, this is the way the U.S. is going to do this. We, we give too many and this is getting into my politics, we give too many rights to all the people. Everybody has to be equal. Everybody has to be this. I think we have to realize that the only way we're going to get through this is to do a, tra- a transitionary martial law sort of thing. This is what it's going to be. And if you, if you don't want to get into one of these tight facilities, if, if you don't feel comfortable mentally, financially, then we deal with you in a different way. Mm-hmm. And that would be maybe the mental health situation is people would prefer to be living on the street because they don't trust the government. They don't do that. So we deal with that in a different way. But right. I would say that 90% of the people that need help, we can provide those if we change a few of the parameters of those. So in what ways do you think architects can you know, advocate for those changes or if it's possible? We have the AIA, our uh, lobbyists, and we can have them have people that go to Washington and say, this is something we can help you solve. Uh, We can design these tight little environments that that give them the privacy of a restroom and 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 a bedroom. And then within that complex, we give you a community room. And within that, you know, within that part of it, we give you some outdoor spaces and stuff. So you can you can develop. And that's part of this master planning with with planners and stuff is how do you design a complex and and Historically, in the past, they used to do these row houses and these and these tight uh, high-rise uh, apartment buildings. They did the trick at the time, and then they tore them down because they became slums and stuff like that. I think that if if people deal more with a temporary solution that is intended to solve the immediate demand, give them the amenities. We've learned a lot architecturally. We've learned a lot sociologically. We can create spaces that that are tight, that are affordable, that meet today's lifestyles. Mm-hmm. And that's going to take psych, you know, psychologists, it's going to take architects, it's going to take planners, it's going to take people that literally have a whole attitude as to how people do it. But we also have to have an economist person in there that basically says, Mike, I can't build what you want to give these people. I can't afford to. Uh, and the only way developers are ever going to get into this is if it's affordable if they can make a profit and if that profit is subsidized from the government that's one way mm-hmm. if it's something where they are are totally privately funded and there's a whole difference between a privately funded construction residential project versus a publicly funded residential project and it's a whole different section in your code i think it's chapter 11a and chapter 11b if you do a publicly funded residential apartment complex you, you have one versus the other and there's more restrictions it, it turns it more into a commercial project as opposed to a residential project so those things have to be sort of changed so that we uh, the developers and the con and the contractors can afford to build these things if it's temporary we say okay this code comes in from 2000 
you know, 25 to, uh, to, 20, to 30, and that's it. it it'll, it'll disappear. These buildings will be torn down. I mean, give them a longevity to it so, so that we know full well that it's a temp. I think you could solve a lot of things by getting people into these temporary type of things, and they are intended to move on. Mm-hmm. That's just that's just a, a, a way. And again, open right. for the discussion. Open for this. That's how we're going to solve this is to discuss it. Yeah, I think one of the biggest issues is funding and if they're allowing to give it because I, I think there is money. The problem is, you know, be willing to fund something that is helpful and impactful to people, to, not to, just to investors. Soul, correct. Yeah. And and I think that's that's a, a hopeful way of doing it is to have charities and, and goodwill and all this other stuff. But I'm a pragmatic person and I think the way to really solve it is to allow a profit in there. Challenge developers, give them the opportunity so that they don't have to do subsidize. Subsidize requires a lot of administration things. There's a lot of developers that do not want to enter into an affordable subsidized project because there's a lot of administration stuff. Half the money comes from the state, half the money comes from the the person that's living there. There's, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of bureaucratic type of stuff that's associated with it. If somehow we can get into an affordable, profitable construction situation where contractors can say, hey, I can build you 10,000 of these things because I'm making a profit on them. That's the goal, I think. I think you would accomplish a a lot more and quicker if you can get a profit associated with the construction of these things. I think that it just takes way too much time, your bureaucracy, the whole thing, if you would rely on charities or the government to make these things constructed. That's That's just a personal thing. I read and I had a professor who focuses on ADUs and one of the issues is, um, you know, the profiting off of the ADUs. They've been able to build, I think, five of them so far in a few years. And it's because of the the whole money situation that plays mm-hmm. into it. Have you considered working? That's almost, that's the way communities are resolving these things. They're taking a R1 zoned area that typically would have one unit and now they're allowing two or three units on it. I think that's an excellent way of, of getting a higher, denser use of this thing where you know multiple families can occupy the same property mm-hmm. uh, or they can rent it out in the back if that's possible. Zoning has to change and, and the cities have to change and planners have to change. They have to literally allow almost a single family residential zoning to allow for multifamily zoning. So that gets back to your cities and your planners that that have to loosen up on on the density. I think that goes into one of uh, the questions that I wanna ask about the challenges of Riverside and when it comes to zoning. I know that a lot of these ADUs are being built in LA, but I'm not quite familiar with any in Riverside and how it might be different than LA. Everybody's a follower. Everybody, you know, doesn't want to be the first one to 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 op, open up this this challenging sort of prospect and stuff. These cities are going to have to come around because the state has has put quotas on housing, and each county and each city has to meet those quotas in some sort of capacity. And if they can't challenge developers to build an apartment complex, whether it's a five story what or a three story or whatever else, they have to do it in some capacity. And the way they can do it is to offer these ADUs and stuff to, to offset the, the fact that they're not um, you know, building these, these apartments. So 
I think the cities will change based on the fact that the state is, is dictating these uh, quotas as far as providing accommodations and, and housing. So it's going to be self-healing, I think, and the fact mm-hmm. that they just are forced to, to do it. And, and a creative city allows creative solutions. And I think cities just sort of learn as it goes. So I think it'll, it'll be a catalyst for, other, for all the cities to just sort of do this because it's, it's not a bad solution. I think that's one of the big themes of of our discussion is really, you know, money and someone who who puts it forward. Correct. Leadership. Yeah. Yeah. This infrastructure thing that's that hopefully will pass through the government soon. I mean, it's going to be trillions of dollars worth of infrastructure. There's nothing wrong with that infrastructure package, not just correcting all the stuff that's that's deteriorating but do a little foresighted thing that, that how do you, you know, anticipate the expansion of things to make all these other things that are happening in the, in the um, world, including housing, how does that work? So mm-hmm. infrastructure shouldn't necessarily be correcting the, the deterioration. It should be thinking about the future. Right. I did want to touch on a project uh, with Habitat for Humanity um, mm-hmm. in Reno Valley that you um, worked on. If, you could discuss the process and the outcome in in terms of how it affected the public and how it how successful it is. Um, we we don't get heavily involved in the administration of the clients like that, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's not necessarily a, a negative. It's not necessarily a positive. They come to us after they've done all their legwork, where they've devo- they've found the site. They've, mm-hmm. they've determined who are the users of that, of that particular site because they, they have a waiting list of people that are going to do it. I think that you're talking about the Mead Street project where there's eight houses or something like that. Like that. So basically, they knew beforehand that there were going to be users of every single one of those houses. So if you build them, they will have an occupied person on there. So, mm-hmm. And again, that gets to a, a charitable operation that builds those things. So those houses literally were fi- financed by... Uh, the charity of, of the Habitat for Humanity. So if you have more comp- more uh, operations like Habitat that build these things, that, that donate, that's ideal, but there's a limitation to how many they can do. There's also a limitation to, the, again, the money. So it's, it's a, and, and that was a tight facility. We basically crammed in uh, eight uh, houses into a very small thing. So the city, I think, worked with the idea of, of reducing the sizes of things the facilities that we gave them were very pragmatic. Mm-hmm. The houses were very small. Um, they had to meet handicapped accessibility. So the restrooms were big, the kitchens were big. Uh, and so, so you, just, you just deal with what you can, but Habitat comes to us sort of after they've done all their administration. Mm-hmm. You don't go out and search out and, and assist them on that. That's, that's not part of our training or scope. So I, I'm not, I would, I'd like to, and I'd like to be able to, but it's just, I don't have the opportunity to do that sort of stuff. They find it. They come to us and say, we need 14 houses. Three of them will be the same floor plan. And you give them a little facility. They, they pull the permits. The city gives them uh, a little leeway on their fees and stuff. So there's, a, there's an advantage for a charity to, to actually get all these amenities and these, these financial things. But so, so they are pretty much the, the runner of all the operations. And I, and I try to do, well, I'm, I'm really emphasizing in Riverside. I really like Riverside. The city is, is, is a great city. Um, it, my domain is that area, the Inland Empire. So any infill apartment complex or whatever that comes in, I try to encourage the 
developer to go with senior housing right now because senior housing isn't necessarily affordable, but it, it has a, a huge demand for the aging population. Mm-hmm. The city also has a huge advantage parking-wise for the for the senior housing. So you can get a higher density of units because you have a lower requirement for parking. So you can almost get like 25% more senior housing units on a site than you can if it was just you know um, regular regular rentals. So there's there's an advantage. I encourage that particular thing. The affordability, the city has an advantage that they call it um, cons- concessions, where if you do 10% of your units as affordable housing, you can have one concession. If you do 20, you can have two concessions. If you do, they only goes up to 30, 30%, but they give you a concession on what you can do on that site. It could be a setback, re- easing. They, they would allow, it. this is only zoning. Okay, so it's, it's zoning planning department consignments, it's uh, concessions. It's not building department. They do not give you any leeway on that. And that's that's the drawback of this thing is that building department gives you absolutely nothing, no flexibility on what they will allow you to build. The planning is your friend when it comes to these concessions because you can get up to 30% or three concessions and stuff. So, so, the, so you can get a better use in going to the affordable housing, but the owner has to go with all these forms in the administration and he has to be set up for that sort of stuff. So throwing that that requirement onto the owner allows or forces him into a permanent and I I mean for the rest of the project has to be a, a an affordable housing complex and he has to be committed to that administration process where he has to get part of his funds from one and part of it from another one and he has to sign paperwork and do all sorts of stuff so there's there's an advantage to it but it has to be something where a person is willing to take on that administration stuff I actually did want to talk about your orange, the the complex, and also on how it affects people of older age. I did read an article on how people are really affected by the pandemic, finding housing, uh-huh. and as they move forward, you know, left alone and a lot of issues uh-huh. coming into uh-huh. play. Have you visited Orangeville? I have not. The, the, okay. The Orangeville was our first of that senior housing for a developer that that brought us probably three or four other apartment complexes. We used the philosophy of the design of that particular project on many other senior housing complexes. So it was like a template that we used for Monte Vista. We used it for Patterson. We used it for a lot of different future senior housing complexes. And it works very well because it's, it's like a donut-shaped sort of complex plan where everybody's front door is facing into a courtyard and, and um, th- there's a walkway that goes both on the second floor and a, and a patio or deck on the, on, the, on the first floor. And then we have a front patio for these people and a back patio. So they can either face away from the courtyard uh, to the outside perimeters of the property lines or whatever it is, or they can face into it with their, with their tables and chairs and stuff and be in a private patio outside the public walkway. So they have a very, very social link to that mm-hmm. courtyard that's in the middle. So it works very well. And we have a barbecue pit and, and activities areas in that courtyard. So all, and the cities require a combination of a certain amount of square footage of private open space and a certain amount of public open space per unit. 
So in, in the city of Riverside, you're required to have both. And, and some of them are 400 square feet per unit. 400 square feet is the equivalent of like two or three bedrooms. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of square footage. And mm-hmm. that's the public area. And then the private is, I think, 100 to 150 square feet. Or, and it varies depending upon the zone that you're in. But that's not easy to achieve and economically easy to achieve. But in, in Orangeville, we gave them the required private and we gave them the required public square footage that's necessary. So it's, it meets the, the now zoning requirements and things. And it also meets the psychological requirement for senior housing because the people will sit out in their patio, enjoy that. If they want to go out and do the barbecue, they can do that. Mm-hmm. And so we've used Orangeville, which I think is 12 units, and we've extruded the plan, the plan into 39 units in one complex and 20-some in a different complex. So we've used that concept and it's extremely successful from a rental point of view because the seniors like what we give them. The parking's remote and isolated. So once they park their car, they may never go to it for you know a week or two at a time. And they just are in their internal little safe shell because there's a locked gate to get into the, the complex. So it's a, it's a very safe environment. And I think that's what seniors are after right now is, mm-hmm. is the combination of the ability to be as active and as uh, involved as they want but still have that security of, the, of a complex. Right. Thank you. I think there, there needs to be this protection for them, right. but there's also this need for them to be active. Just... And as social as they want. So they have right. that flexibility. And again, the two patios gives them that opportunity. And that's one thing that the developer chose to do. He, it's, it's almost twice as much private space as the, as the codes require. So he, mm-hmm. he chose to give them this opportunity for the two types of, of patios. And it's just a, it's a, just a nice little amenity that he gave to them. Just my last question would be, what advice would you give me as an architecture student and those who are interested in designing for affordable housing? Persevere. I mean, bottom line is there, it has to have a solution. You, you and your generation have to solve this thing because we can't continue on with the, the, the way we're going. So be patient be aggressive, but, and just, just literally be creative in your solutions, work with developers, be very, very hands-on as far as trying to find somebody that, that is, is receptive to your attitudes and stuff like that, that might do it. But I think you have to realize that things have to be affordable and construction has to be affordable. And the only way we're going to accomplish the goal of affordable housing and getting the homeless out and things like that is to come up with financial solutions that make sense. And that, that's whether it's donations from charities or government assistance, or just being able to construct economically. Mm-hmm. And so you have those three different ways of being able to build these projects. And my goal, I think your most successful ones is going to be constructing it in an economical way. And I think the way that's gonna work is downsizing mm-hmm. density, but in, in doing the, the density and the downsizing, you can't get away from the fact that human beings are going to be living there and they're going to either appreciate what you give them or they're going to reject and, and respond negatively to what you give them. So that's where the psychological comes in. Can, can Americans live in the same tight space that a Japanese person could live in? Right. Um, and what is the impact of giving something, building something that somebody can't live in, that they can't survive in, that they can't function in? 
So you're, you've got to, you've got to come up with your psychological. So get some psychological friends, get some people that are in the community of psychologists and psychiatrists Mm -hmm. and sociologists and stuff, form that communication with them as to how they would solve this if they were an architect, because it takes that entire teamwork to get the solution that works uh, and talk to your business people. And that's the reason I love the business is we, we are the coordinator of everything. I mean, that, that's an egotistic thing as far as that goes, but that's the reason I'm in it is because I take all the parameters that, that exist in every single thing that people live in and work in and, and dine in and things, and we make that work for them. So we are the kingpins of everybody's, this is ego again, <laughs> it's, it's a- we control everybody's lifestyle. And that's the reason I like this thing is, is it's, it's power mm-hmm. and we have that power, but you have to solve this, the parameters uh, in a pragmatic way that will make your solution work from a financial point of view, from a user's point of view, it has to work. And you have to, you have to have, you have to have that ego like Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, Hey, you do it my <laughs> way or no, or not at all. You have to take that attitude to get things done. And you have to take somebody else's point of view and you have to make it work. And it's the entire package. So when in designing, you think it's important to bring, you know, the user's perspective into it rather than. In an educated way, you, you are the, you are the cheerleader. You are the, the, the leader of this entire team. So you have to be, you have to listen to them, but you also have to guide them. You Mm -hmm. have to use your expertise that you've developed through education, through experience, and you have to guide them. You're going to be you know, offering a certain parameter that, that is absolutely critical, whether it's financial or goal-wise, whatever else. So you have to listen and you have to lead. Jim Broeski discusses important themes such as building code limitations and economical restrictions in development. He also suggests that it is important to collaborate with not only developers, but with other organizations, most importantly, psychological services. Every case may vary, and understanding that it takes a team to resolve the question of affordable housing is essential. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit calhum.org for more. A special thanks to Itzia for this episode, Jim Broeski for his participation, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>